We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness this week on The Meaningful Life is Jed Diamonds. Jed has a master's degree in social work and a PhD in international health. He's the founder of Men Alive, where you can find more information about his work, and the author of all sorts of books. Some of the ones we might be talking about today are My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Father Wound, which actually I found so inspiring that I decided I should write about my father too. It's a subject that all men have to discuss, I'm afraid. He's also the author of The Irritable Male Syndrome and The Twelve Rules for Good Men. So, Jed, welcome onto my podcast today. The subject that I found really interesting from one of the many blogs you've written is about personal creation myths. Let's sort of start off by explaining what are creation myths and why are they important? Well, I think we often think about creation myths if we think about them at all in relationship to stories that are foundational in how cultures form. And almost all peoples of the world, uh, particularly indigenous peoples, talk about how they came to be, where they came from, what their origins were. And I've come to see uh, through my own healing process, through my own work with people over the last 50 years as a therapist, that we all have stories about our origins, often that we are not aware of, that we don't talk about. We're not even aware that we have them, but they influence everything about how we do our lives. And I've found that one of the the healing processes that can do a lot of understanding of who we are and where we're going and maybe some of the places we get stuck happens more easily if we're able to get in touch with some of these basic creation stories, which often come from trauma or come from woundedness. And so without being aware of them, that story or that way we see the world or how we view ourselves how we view relationships, how we view other people, often is colored by a traumatic experience or set of experiences in our early lives. America will have a creation myth itself, the nation, not just people. So we get sort of into this idea. Explain to me what you think the creation myth for America might be. Well, I think, uh, you know, we're aware, many of us, that at least through my eyes, America is coming to the end of a certain era of, we might call it the American empire. There have been many empires in the world. The British empire certainly was one, and there were many other empires that came and, and then declined. And there's been numerous studies about empire that indicate that Empires last, if they last a length of time, about 10 generations, so about 250 years. And America started our independence 1776, 
And if you look at 2020, where I'm sitting now and we're sitting together in that year, uh, it's 246 years. So this is about that 10 generations. And I think when I look from inside America, others may see us obviously from the outside, that I think there's a lot of indicators that America is not doing very well. When you look at COVID, you look at who our leader is at this particular period of time, and just the way in which our Black Lives Matter and the violence that's going on in the country, how we're dealing with things. I think there's a lot of indicators that this myth that we had as we created ourselves, that we were this unique culture that was going to change the world and we were going to create wonderful things forever is a part of a, a larger story that hasn't been addressed, which is the woundedness that it's at the core of America. The myth might be the shining city on the hill, right. but actually the myth is only half of the story. Exactly right. Let's look at the sort of myths that we ourselves might have. And having read your fabulous book, My Distant Dad, which I recommend 100% to every man, and in fact, actually every woman as well, if you want to understand how men work, you are very generous and share a lot of your foundation myths. So let's sort of split it up. Let's talk about your mother first. What sort of myths of your personal creation did you get from your mother? Well, my mother was a very independent woman. She had moved from the South to New York to uh, get away from the upbringing she had had in the South. And this was in the 1920s. And she was kind of one of the original uh, flapper girls, independent women. She might have been the feminist of the time. But she, she had a great fear of dying, and she was constantly afraid. So when I was born, I was came into the world in 1943. That's kind of my year of creation. But even as I was being birthed, she was afraid that I would die, just as she was afraid that she would die. And there's part of the story, as, as you know from reading the book about what were the origins of that fear. But I grew up with this dual fear that somehow she was not going to live very long. She would tell stories about when I would finish high school. I'm so glad you finished high school while I'm still alive. You know, I wasn't sure I'd see the day you'd graduate from high school. And that kind of story that I, I never thought about as a story or something that influenced me. But deep down inside, I grew up with a message from my mother, which is you have to be independent. You have to take care of yourself because you never know when the person closest to you is about to die because it could be any day now. That sounds terrifying to me. Well, it, it was the terror that I spent a lot of my life avoiding. And the way I avoided that terror was I lived a lot of my life in a fantasy world. It was as though I pushed aside those messages that I'm going to die that I got from my mother. And what I said is, well, you know, in the world of fantasy, in the world of make-believe, nobody dies. There are magical people that are always there to support me. So that was one way that I pushed aside that fear 
of she's going to die and I'm going to be all alone and then I'll die. The other way I did it was becoming supremely independent. From an early age, I took care of myself and I went places on my own and I did things on my own as if to say, I don't need a mother. I don't need anybody. I can take care of myself. Give me an example of something that would shock us now that you did as a young person. Well, there were many things. Some I I, I can't tell in public, but <laughs> uh, one of the things that I didn't think anything of it was from the time I was probably eight years old, I would take the bus from where I lived in, in what's called San Fernando Valley, which is outside of Los Angeles. And I would take the bus into Hollywood and I would go to movies on my own as an eight-year-old, or I would walk the streets and meet interesting people. And, you know, my mother had to work, so, you know, I was kind of on my own. And she, you know, just, oh, well, so as long as you get home, you know, before dark. So I would, you know, I would go off, take care of myself, do adventures, do things that I would never tell her about because they were even more dangerous than the idea of being by yourself alone somewhere 40 or 50 miles away from home. And your mother knows absolutely no idea where I was, just that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Hollywood, see you when I get back. That, that was one of the, uh, the things that I did for a number of years at that early age. And what about your father? What did he add to your personal creation myth? Well, my father was kind of the more caring parent, where my mother was somewhat distant and afraid because she was afraid she was going to die or I was going to die. So the way she dealt with it was being kind of aloof and independent. My father was the nurturing father. He would hold me, ride me on his shoulders. I had memories of him taking me in the parks and just riding all around. But he became increasingly depressed because he couldn't make a living to support his family. And at that time, and still now to many degree, being able to be the man that supports his family is part of the core of what men need to do. And when I was five years old, he took an overdose of sleeping pills, and he ended up being committed to the state mental hospital in Camarillo. And I spent then a year with my uncle visiting my father in the mental hospital. And I wondered why my mother didn't go. I mean, why would she send a, you know, a five-year-old child and all I could get from her was that your father needs you. And the story that I kind of put together was he tried to take his own life because he became depressed because he couldn't support his family. And in my mind, the family was when I came along, when I was born. So I had this idea somehow that I was the cause of his demise, his potential suicide. And so it was my job to take care of him, to fix it. I had no idea what that meant, but that was part of my early idea that somehow I'm to blame for what happened to my father. And I must then go into this crazy place in order to somehow make it right. What a surprise you became a therapist. Yes, exactly right. On that note, I maybe two or three years ago, I was, I, redid my business cards. And my official business cards at this time had said, helping people to live long and well since 1969, which is when I've officially started as a therapist in the field. But then I realized I've actually been 
doing that job, helping men and the women who love them, which is my focus, since I was five years old, a much longer period of time. So it's been since a since 1949. Core of exactly. Not 1960, but 1949. Exactly right. What was a mental hospital like for a five year old child? Well, it was terrifying. I still have memories of my uncle and driving and me being very frightened, like, what are we going to see? What, why do I have to go? And he would just hum a tune and, and we would get there. And remember, from the outside, it looked kind of pleasant. It had palm trees in front and manicured lawns up front. The thing that tipped me off was the bars on the windows. And then when I got inside, there were people rocking and drooling and crying and screaming. And it was like, my God, what, why, why am I here? Why is my father here? And then I saw him. And I remember the first image I had the first time I went was he had this kind of wild-eyed look in his eyes. And he hadn't shaved for a while. And he had little bits of food embedded in his cheek and his mouth. And I realized something is terribly wrong with where I am, with my father. And it just reinforced somehow that I must have done something terribly wrong that he ended up here. And I must do something miraculous to try to fix things. He actually ended up running away from there, didn't he? Well, I ran away first. You ran away first? Yeah. After a year of going, I reached a point where I came one day with my uncle, Uncle Harry, my father's brother-in-law, married to my father's sister. And one day we got there and my father looked down at me and looked up at his brother-in-law and said, uh, Harry, who is this kid you got with you? And he had reached a point being in the hospital at that point for a year where he obviously had gotten worse, not better, and he didn't know who I was. And so I, I finally went back and confronted my mother and I said, listen, I don't want to go anymore. I don't want to stay. So she said, okay, you don't have to go. And he stayed another from that point when I stopped. He remained hospitalized for another seven or eight years until one day on one of the visits still with his brother-in-law, came to see him every Sunday, that my father walked away just uh said, Harry, I got to go across the street and get some stamps. And he went across the street and he never came back. And he actually walked, hitchhiked from the hospital, which was north of Los Angeles, all the way into Los Angeles and started a whole new life on the streets of Los Angeles out of the mental hospital. What's foundation creation myth did you then sort of tack on to the one from your mother for the one for your father? Well, what I got from that, that I, I started with the people closest to me are going to die. So I have to be independent, be on my own. Then I added on to that, the people closest to me are going to go crazy. And I'm probably going to end up in a mental hospital because I'm going to be like my father. So I had, again, this view, but again, I hid from that. I told myself deep down, I'm going to go crazy like my father, but I can't contemplate that. So I told myself, first, I'm going to fix it. 
I will fix him. And that was my early thing. Then he escaped. And then I basically denied that he existed. People ask me, so, you know, as kids do in schools, what does your father do? And what I told them, my father died. That was how I how I dealt with it. My father died. Oh, okay. People could at least understand that. But I basically actually came to believe my father didn't exist anymore. That was that was the the way I at the time dealt with the the fear of the reality that my deep creation story was embedded in me and I covered it over and hid from it for many years. Although we're talking about this in a very sort of rational, clear way, this was all entirely unconscious. And, you know, you've done a lot of work to actually get to the point that you can actually bring it up to the surface and look at it. Exactly. It's pretty terrifying, but we can sort of cope with it. But with it all hidden away and stuffed down and entirely unconscious, it's going to be really driving you along and making you make certain kind of choices. Now, what were those choices that it made you make that you were not conscious of, but um, your unconscious was driving you along with? Right. It drove me to be, as I said, very independent, learn to take care of myself very early, learn to cook, learn to get where I needed to go. I started earning a living when I was about seven years old, selling Christmas cards over the holidays at a bicycle uh, route delivering newspapers. So one part of me was independent man, young man, and then later uh, uh, an adult. But my relationships, I was a loner. You know, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have, as I got older, I had a hard time relating to women. Uh, I got involved in sexual relationships, but no intimate relationships. Eventually got married and then got divorced and then got married again and then got divorced again. So my relationships were a mess. Professionally, I was working as a therapist and very successful (laughs) counseling people and writing books and, you know, and, and trying to keep hidden the fact that I'd been married and divorced and married and divorced and, you know, this whole other life that I was running from. But that was at a point then where things started falling apart for me. Because I sort of get the picture that on one level, you're pushing people away. But if you think they're all going to die and you're going to be left alone, you're going to cling on to them. So we've got clinging and pushing away. Am I hearing it right? Exactly. Uh, Mostly pushing away, but you get lonely pushing people away. And so eventually you hunger to get connected and then you want to hold on tight and you hold on tight so much you smother the people that you're close to and they want to run away from you because you're, for me, both clingy and very angry. You mentioned I wrote some other books, including The Irritable Male Syndrome and dealing with the way I had dealt with my depression and my anger was in the relationships I would cling. And then if they didn't do what I hoped they would do, I'd get very enraged at them and hold them at the same time and yell and scream at them. And most people don't like that. Funny that really, isn't it? (laughs) But you can't have a meaningful life if you've got all of this sorry, I'm going to use a non-technical term, all this crap running in your system that you're not really aware of. Right. 
So it is incredibly important to be able to put together your creation myth because it begins to make an awful lot of sense. You know, it seems crazy to cling and push, but actually when you look at it within the context of your background, it makes entire sense, doesn't it? Well, it does. And most people, me included, never wanted to look at that because it was terrifying to look at. And you only look at it, I only looked at it when my life started to become unmanageable. All addicts, and this is a kind of addiction to this behavior, I think all addictions at core are ways in which we run away from that core wound that we have, in a way running away from our creation myth. And some run into drugs to try to push it away. Some do sex addiction, some do workaholism. But ultimately, when things start falling apart, our relationships fall apart, our health falls apart, we become depressed, we become suicidal in many cases, which I did as well, that we then start saying, I need help. I need to figure this out. This isn't working for me. And so for me, uh, it started with self-help groups and support groups. It started with therapy and me reaching out. Even though I was a therapist, I finally went to other therapists and said, listen, I, you know, I know I'm a good therapist, but hey, man, there's another side of me that I need to talk about because you know it's a mess. So things started then to come around as they often do after the dark night of the soul where you hit bottom in your own way and say, I just can't keep going on like this. It's too destructive. It's too painful. And then we start to figure out what's really going on. And that was where I began to, one, remember what in fact happened to me when I was a child. And I began to get some of those pieces and starting to put them into place and then to understand them and then to build on them. So what was your personal dark night of the soul? Well, there were numerous ones. I don't know that there was, you know, I mean, it's a literary kind of thing that there is a, and for some there is, there were numerous ones for me. There was the breaking up of my first marriage and the divorce that came after that. There was the breaking up of our family because we had two children and the loss of my connection to my children was another one. Another one was when I remarried a woman who slept with a gun under her pillow. And I thought that she was the perfect partner for me. I didn't realize the gun under the pillow might be a tip-off to somebody who might say, you know, maybe some of this self-destructive energy or flirting with death or this feeling of afraid of death that I was creating. So that was one, particularly when we reached a point where it looked like one of us was going to die and either she was going to kill me or I was going to kill her. That was another dark night of the soul. But together, two or three or four of those congealed to get me consistently in a place of deep understanding, deep reflection and deep healing. Once again, once you understand the creation myth, it makes sort of sense that if you're frightened of dying, then, you know, you're going to challenge that, you know, marry a woman with a gun. It sort of has a bizarre kind of logic to it. But you don't see that logic unless you understand the creation myth. Exactly. The fear is if I ever look deeply at these things, the fear tells you you're going to die or you're going to go crazy. Those are my two very core parts of the creation. Either I'm going to die 
because I will push away the people or they will leave me and I'll be all alone and I'll be like a small five-year-old all alone and die. Or I will lose my mind and I will be physically alive, but I'll be locked up in a mental hospital and get electroshock treatments. My fear was you just end up a vegetable. That was the image of being in a nut house back then. So those are the fears that you have to look. But when you finally do, you realize, as you say, it all makes sense. And it's not so frightening. And you go, oh, I get it. I'm not so crazy. The fear of death is understandable. My flirting with and getting married to a woman with a gun to her pillow, well, that does make sense. And you start putting your life together and you return to your life, basically. It's like taking the puzzle pieces of a, a very complex puzzle that has all been confusing and you have a piece here and a piece there, but there's big chunks missing. And all of a sudden you go, it starts to fall into place. Your life starts getting clear and you begin to relax into your life. As you know, I'm now married for the third time to a woman that I've been married to now for 40 years. She attributes a lot of our good and healthy 40-year marriage to the fact that I've been in a men's group that's been meeting for 41 years. And that was kind of my first being able to reach out to others and be vulnerable and tell my story and to listen and feel like I was with a a group of men, a group of brothers who could hold this very, what I thought was this crazy story that nobody could understand. I know lots of men who would rather chop off two of their legs and maybe even their penis rather than admit to other men that they feel vulnerable. But as somebody who's been in a sort of group for about five years of other men, it is wonderful. Well, it is. It's life-saving, and it's part of what we all long for. We long for the brothers some of us never had. We long for the parents that we didn't have or wanted. And, you know, we talked at the beginning of the father wound, which was kind of at the core of my male defenses and my male disconnections. And when you're able to begin to heal that, you begin to heal your relationships with men. And often, in order to heal our relationships with women, we have to be in the company of other men. I talk about in the new book that you mentioned, The 12 Rules for Good Men. The first rule is join a men's group, because I think we often have to be in the company of other men and be vulnerable with other men before we can really feel comfortable as a man in our own skin. And if we can't feel comfortable as a man in our own skin, we're not able to have intimate relationships with anybody. Who can teach you to be a man beyond another man? Exactly. The wonderful thing about creation myths is once you actually know them, you can reform them and you can change them and turn them into something that's actually not quite so destructive. How have you changed your creation myth? Well, part of it is accepting the truth of our lives. That's the first part of reframing the myth, because while it's unconscious, all we're left with is often the terror, but none of the positives, none of the full picture of it. For instance, part of my view of my father was that 
he was a failure. He had tried to kill himself and he wasn't even good at that. He failed at killing himself. And later when I was able to meet my father, actually through my first book that I wrote, uh, I wrote a book called Inside Out, Becoming My Own Man. And I had talked about him in that book and I hadn't seen him, you know, since he had gone off to the mental hospital and somebody had read the book and recognized my father and had knew who he was and put me in touch with him. And I was able in later years to actually meet him, get to know him. And I realized that there was much more positive to the story that I didn't realize at the time. And so I was able to change the myth of my father was crazy and he tried to kill himself to my father got out of, for him, a situation of unparalleled conflict. Because on the one hand, he had grown up, like many of us, saying, you must make a living to support your family. On the other hand, he was living at a time where, as many of us are still, where an economy wasn't able to support him doing the work that he loved. So he could either not do the work that he loved. He was a writer and an actor, and he could stop doing that and then not feel like a man. Or he could keep trying to do what he loved to do and not making a living at it and be a failure at that. Well, what I realized by getting out of that bind, going into a mental hospital, getting out of a mental hospital, and then he became a street puppeteer and actually did very successfully for years what he had longed to do, which was to put on shows to to be a, a, a theatrical person, but he no longer had to make a living at it. He was a street performer, and that fit for him. So I was able to put together not only my father's piece, but my mother's piece to, when I saw the whole picture, I could reframe it as a hero's journey theirs and mine, and put together a more complete story that people have said, uh, you know, it's all going to turn out fine in the end. And if it hasn't turned out fine, it means it isn't the end. In some ways, the story of our lives is just the perfect story for our lives. And if we can put it all together and see its actual picture, then that creation beginning has a whole new understanding and it is seen in a whole new light. Put it into a nice crisp kind of formula so we can see how you've actually turned it around. So your mother gave you fear, but she also gave you another gift as well, didn't she? Well, the fear was that she was going to die and that I was going to die. Well, when you're a little kid, that's terrifying. But the truth is, we are all going to die. She died, you know. It just wasn't when I was a little kid, but it could have been. Had she died when I was young, I would have had the strength to be able to take care of myself, which is a good quality. I am going to die someday, but it gave me the focus saying, you know, I don't want to die young. I don't want to die any younger than I have to. You know, I think I'm going to take good care of myself. I think I'm going to 
study mental health and physical health. So I went off to medical school. And then, as you point out, I got a master's degree in social work and a PhD in international health. You know, the fear turned into health consciousness. And I, I think a realistic way of addressing the realities that we're going to die someday, but we can live fully for a lot of years if we take care of ourselves. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My guest today is Jed Diamond. I hope that you're enjoying this meaningful life because we need your support. If you join our supporters club, you get all sorts of wonderful benefits. One of them is that you can write a letter into us that I discuss with my guests. And so, Jed, I have a story from, uh, not a story, a letter from a man, but it does have a story in it as well. My wife is angry all the time and shouts at me. I've been married 14 years and have three kids. It's not that I've been unfaithful or anything. My wife is just unhappy. She won't go to counselling and I've just accepted that's the way she is. Her parents had a traumatic divorce 30 years ago and she still refuses to talk to her mother. I try my very best to keep my mouth shut when her anger is up and concentrate on doing positive things. Lately, she's projecting onto our kids, i.e. whenever they act badly, even minor bad behaviour. When I speak to her about it, then it's our relationship that's the cause. I can endure any insults she throws at me, but labelling the kids in this way is a step beyond. The conundrum for me now is, what is the lesser evil for the kids? Divorce or endure? So what do you think? It's a familiar story. There's elements of my own story in there. There's elements, I think, of a lot of stories that I hear from clients and people that contact me, both men and women. I mean, this is a story you could flip the genders around. And this is, I've heard this similar kind of story of angry men. So it's a familiar story. And a couple of things that, you know, that I, w I would say is one, if you read the last sentence in, in the, the letter, yeah, I want let to me comment read it. on that. Let me read it again. What is the lesser evil? What is the lesser evil for the kids, divorce or endure? Right. So one of the things that I learned from my own stories and helping others is that often if we don't see the whole picture, it looks either black or white. The choice is we stay or we leave. We endure or what's going to be best for the kids. And what I've seen is, is a couple of things. One is those aren't the only choices. You know, if we expand our options, if we expand our frame of reference, either the person themselves or through some help, some counseling, you can see that maybe you can stay and things can get better. To do that, you have to see this larger picture that the person that wrote the letter begins to see. That is, this is not just about me and the kids. 
You know, it isn't just about our present relationships. There are what I call shadows of the past. There's this overlay of what the woman's past was like and the wounds that she may have had that now are being played out in her relationship with her husband and the anger that she feels. And you can, as a therapist or just as somebody listening to this, you can recognize, you can begin to see and wonder and ask, wonder what happened to her, wonder what her upbringing was like. I wonder what anger that was in her family of origin and what her origin story was, what her origin myth was. So you begin to expand the vision. And I do that with somebody came to me with that letter in counseling, or if the person is simply listening or sent it in to you because they were, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to expand their vision, their their understanding, to recognize that another kind of truth of this is there's a kind of a, a myth of relationship that says in order to fix a troubled relationship, it takes two to tango is the the term. Mm -hmm. It takes two to tango. You you know, if the other person isn't willing to get help, what can I do? It's an either or. Well, I guess I can stay and endure or I can take the kids and leave. Either one is going to be... Get a new tango partner. Right. Or get a new tango partner. Or you recognize that the truth is, again, an image, but you get the idea. It actually only takes one to tango. You can tango by yourself. You know, you can do all the moves. You just have this belief that says it takes two. And what I would say to your letter writer, and I say to people that come to me, is I say, because we're connected, because the man and woman are connected, the two partners are connected. If he changes, if he deals with his issues, because I guarantee that anybody who's in relationship with a wounded person, just like all those women that I was in relationship with, and I came to see my wounds, they had their own wounds that they brought to the dance. So this person, I would say, you don't have to just sit back and wait for her to change. And if she doesn't change and she isn't willing to get help, then your options are only this or that. You can do something. You can go and get help. You can begin to see what part of this dance am I participating in? What part of this am I feeding? What part of this am I afraid to address because I'm afraid she'll get angry at me or she'll get violent or she'll it'll be worse on the kids. So you begin to help that person take charge of both their own life and realizing that doing that, they can also influence the larger relationship. It's very easy to look at other people's behavior and the bits of our behavior that we're not actually accepting ourselves we're very good at spotting on other people. I mean, the biblical version is we can't see the speck in our own eye, but we can see the plank in other people's eyes. Well, actually, it should be the other way around. We can see the speck in their eyes, but we can't see the plank in our own. So if you're saying that your wife is unhappy and she's angry, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he might be unhappy and angry too. I'm wondering... What is it that makes people angry? 
where do we get this anger from? What's anger trying to tell us? What do you think as an expert on angry men and anger in general? Well, I think that you're right in the direction that you're looking. We often get stuck on trying to fix the other person or despair of trying to fix the other person and therefore feeling that things can't be fixed. But as soon as you find some part of the story or some part of the situation that you might have some part of, whether it's the entree through your potential anger, certainly one of the ways people go, if I'm seeing so much anger in you, what anger might be in me? As soon as you can do that, then you can begin to explore. And if you're in relationship, you can explore together. So instead of being in conflict, you go, let's, let's explore where what the anger is trying to tell us. What's it trying to teach us about our relationship or what's it trying to bring our attention to that we're not looking at and the anger is a way of deflecting. So it becomes a, a vehicle for re-empowerment so that you're not feeling helpless and also an opportunity then to work together to explore things that seem up until then like our only option is this or that, and both of them are ones that neither person wants. And you can do that if you stop labelling your partner, and because it's very easy to label somebody angry, unhappy, and then we can dismiss it. But actually, if you can take off the label and then become curious, as you've just said, why are they angry? There's probably a very good reason in the same way there was a very good reason why you were dating a woman with a gun under a pillow. You know, there is actually underneath it a very good reason. And actually, if we're curious, we can find it, we can change. Exactly right. So that's the reframing or the looking in a new way that we get from doing therapy. We can get it from an aha experience in reading a book. We can get it from hopefully listening to a a podcast like this, where we can get some little glimpse of, oh, I identify with that, that maybe there's something in here that I can learn. So as soon as we do that, it frees us up to get out of the roadblock and the stuck places that so many times we find ourselves in. If you can get out of the stuck place, you can actually give your children a real gift. It's a real gift to show them that you can turn things around because instead of passing on the parcel of crap from the past onto the next generation, you're actually saying, we don't have to just either endure or run away. We can actually stay curious and we can find out by going deeper another alternative. So I hope that's been helpful to you. And if you'd like me to discuss a letter with one of my future guests, go to my website, uh, www.andrewgmarshall.com, and you'll find details of our supporters club. And that will take you to the Patreon site, and you can join this experience of talking about what makes life meaningful. Jed, it's been wonderful to actually talk to you after years of sending backwards and forwards books and messages to each other. And I'm sort of thinking about what I've sort of learned from you today. And I think what I really value is the fact that you've been doing this for so long, that you can actually give 
the big picture, the long picture. And to actually be able to see that long picture is really important that, you know, we have this idea of our father and with time we can have an entirely different one. We've just got to stay curious. So thank you for that long image. Today, actually, I went to one of my colleagues' leaving party because he reached 70 and he decided he had enough. You're past 70 and you're still working. And I think that is a wonderful gift to us. So thank you very much. Is there anything from our conversation today that's made you think about things in a a different uh, way? I think just the whole exploration, as as you know, the article that I wrote that you responded to, in which we spent quite a bit of time looking at origin stories, was really unpacked in a way that as a writer and as a therapist, a lot of what I do is in my own mind, in my own office, sometimes with my own creative processes, I think and write, or with one other person. And I found it very helpful to have you from an outside ask questions and be able to go deeper with that and to, in a sense, bring in a third party with the letter that you brought in. So it it really expanded my understanding of those issues as we talked about them, because they're they're all relationship issues. And I think they need to be brought out into the light in various relationship contexts. And the fact that you and I have some experience over the past through writing, being able to see each other as, as we are and be able to talk to listen to each other, to me, gives a new dimension to those stories that I've been living myself, but through a more closed lens than opening it up and talking to you. So I appreciate very much this opportunity to talk more with you and expand our conversation. So as a witness for what makes life meaningful, let's actually focus on on your life. What makes your life meaningful today? Well, I, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking out my window in California and just really appreciating the beauty Right outside, there's a a large redwood tree that hangs over our house, and I'll often sit out in the garden. And I've been feeling lately like I'm a, a resident healer and being able to bring together the body of work that I've developed to share it with other people. I feel like there's this combination of healer and scholar that I'm finding very meaningful at this stage. I'll be 77 in December. And it feels like this is a time to bring a body of experience and life experience of 77 years out into the world in some new ways. So that's part of what is meaningful to me. And then, you know, my personal context, you know, I have five grown children and 17 grandchildren, some of them grown and one great-granddaughter. It feels like this is part of the generations to come that I hope to leave some legacy for. And they're part of my personal legacy. And hopefully the people that are part of this uh, dialogue we're having today are part of the broader legacy of what we're doing here in the world. And how does healing and education fit together? To me, they're intimately related. The, The more I know about my life and my story, the more 
healed I feel and the more together I feel in body, mind, and spirit, and my just getting my shit together, getting my head together, getting my life together. That's been a, a continuing journey. And to me, there's nothing more fascinating when you look at what's there to know in the world, starting with ourselves and then radiating out and finding out we're all connected to this larger story. We have a two billion year history of relationship male and female. I talked about when I wrote the book, 12 Rules for Good Men. It was actually inspired by my wife who said, with all that's going on in the world, we need some good news about men and how can men heal. And, you know, we need to heal the male-female divide and bring the sexes together. And I wondered how far back does male-female go? I found it was a billion years ago. So you've got these two billion-year-old stories of male and female And in a way, it continues all the way back to the beginning of life and maybe before that into what other other dimensions there are. So as I sit here under my my redwood tree and bring together some of the scholar and healer together and share that with the world, I, I can't think of anything more fun, more interesting, more enjoyable or something I want to continue to do as long as I'm I'm living. And more meaningful as well. Jed, thank you very much for being my guest on The Meaningful Life today. And that's where the conversation is going to end for most people. But if you'd like to join our supporters club, you will get some extra benefits. And one of those benefits is the continuing conversation with Jed. I'm going to find out the three things that he knows to be true. So thank you for joining me today on The Meaningful Life, Jed. You're very welcome. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.